Good morning, everyone. It's really, really good to see everyone who's here. Um, visitors who are passing through. Um, and Scott, you left your songs up here, but that's all right. You can just put them right here. <laughs> um, also, Brand, could you turn the lights on right here, please? No? <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's just a lot harder to, for me to read when it's dark. There we go. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Sorry, guys. I know it's distracting. Um, but we're going to be studying this morning about a subject that uh, I don't think I can overstate the importance of this subject. This has been one of those subjects, the poison of bitterness, and understanding bitterness, understanding the danger, the effect, what it looks like, being more self-aware, being also aware of it, of it in others. Um, learning about this from brethren who are older and more experienced, who have talked to me about this and helped me see it in myself, has been something that has helped and equipped my faith maybe more than most anything else. Um, I'm not someone with a lot of wisdom and experience, and so the way that I talk about this is going to be very broken, in a sense. Um, and it's kind of a difficult, difficult subject to talk about because of that. Um, this is something I've wanted to talk about for quite some time. And um, I've heard some lessons, again, just listening to sermons from others on this subject that have put it back into my mind. And I just hope that with what's pointed out that it could help you in some ways that it's helped me. Uh, someone older than me, again, who's talked to me in length about this, mentioned something that has stuck with me over the years since he first said it. And I have found to be generally very true. What he mentioned was that really bitterness is really at the heart of why most brethren would fall away. And it's at the heart of why children of Christians fall away. That really it's, it's the poison of, of bitterness, having resentment, frustration, not handling anger or hurt the way that God would call us to, not allowing God to be healed, not seeing God in a way that would allow us to work through those things in a healing way. I've seen myself in the past trapped in bitterness. I've seen the effect of it in my life. I've seen people I love very dearly uh, trapped by bitterness, poisoned by it, and I've seen brethren lose their faith because of bitterness. I've also seen some of those brethren, some that I'm close to, um, repent of it and be healed of it. And I've seen God doing amazing things in their lives um, after repentance. Um, but this is just something I've seen again and again affect brethren in a way that is very destructive. I've seen its influence. And so it's just, it's very important that we learn how to work through emotions, problems, frustrations, hurts, um, and disappointments in a way that builds our faith rather than destroying it. And I think how we handle a subject like this in a lot of ways determines the longevity of the health of a church like this and really determines how is this church going to do in the long term, right? And how we understand and handle not just the information, but the application determines that. So we're going to be where we looked at the scripture reading. What I'm going to do is start in verses 14 through 17. And first, we're going to deal with the danger. And I think, you know, even though I'm ordering this uh, differently than the text is organized, we're going to go back to verse 1 and look at how the things presented at the beginning of the chapter 
are really solutions to bitterness. So we're going to start with recognizing the danger and then look at solutions. So the danger of bitterness. Let's start with reading verses 14 through 17 again. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So I want to think, what is bitterness? And we're going to start with what I have on the board there. I think what you can see fundamentally, not only I think just by general observation, when you look at people who are lost in resentment or are lost in grudges and anger that is not being dealt with, that bitterness really stems from broken trust or broken expectations. Um, For instance, you may expect that I expected kindness or comfort from a person and instead they gave me cruelty. Or I invested trust into this person, maybe it could be a child to a parent, and they hurt me physically, emotionally, and that creates resentment and hurt and emotional frustration. And if that's not dealt with, it can embitter a person, right? And there's, again, a lot of ways where I might expect or hope that my life would be different than it is. Maybe I was born into a family, and I just don't see that as fair, that I should have been born into a different family with a different setting. Uh, Maybe it's health, maybe it's finances, whatever. That bitterness ultimately stems from putting our trust or our hope in something, someone or some set of circumstances. And when that trust is broken, it presents us with a problem that either we're going to become embittered by that or we're going to learn to work through those things in a heart-healing and Christ-like way. And this is where we'll look at maybe just an example or two that similarly it can stem from believing you're not being given or haven't been given what you desire, what you feel you deserve, or what you feel that you need. And I want you to think about how fundamental this is with Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember how Satan tempted Eve in the beginning? That ultimately it was with twisting her attitude toward God. Has God really said you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Which... I mean, you could eat from any tree except for one, right? But again, planting seeds of bitterness, like maybe God's not looking out for your best interest. And then he said, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll become like him, right? And there Satan is planting the seed of bitterness. So, and with that, bitterness doesn't always look like open resentment. You know, it doesn't always look like an old person on a rocking chair with like their jaw crunched up and their skin all shriveled inward in the middle of their face, right? that sometimes bitterness can actually hide in maybe very shallow, deceptive joy. And the seeds of bitterness are there. And if that person lost what is giving them their joy, like in a shallow sense, that bitterness will be manifested. So really, oftentimes, bitterness is exposed when we lose the thing that we are putting our trust in that isn't God, right? Um, It's usually when we suffer losses. Again, it's when our expectations, our trusts are broken. Um, We see this with Simon the sorcerer. You remember Peter told him that he was trapped in the gall of bitterness. And it didn't seem like Simon was a resentful person, but you remember he wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. And so you see that he had an expectation or he felt he should be given something 
that didn't belong to him and wasn't good for him, right? And so bitterness in Acts 8 with Simon the sorcerer was not manifested in some like, you know, angry resentment, but in expecting something or feeling entitled to something that really did not belong to him at all and he had no right to in that way at all. So again, that's, that's where I think bitterness can stem from. And we see that also, look at verse 16 and 17. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. What did Esau do? He was the firstborn. And even though God had already told Rebekah that the inheritance of the firstborn was going to pass on to Jacob ultimately, we see an instance where Esau was hungry and said he was so hungry that he was about to die. And Jacob offered to give him one meal if he would sell him his entire birthright, which isn't just like physical inheritance, but think like God's promises, the legacy from Abraham. Well, and what good was that doing him now, right? He's hungry. And so what's the point of this inheritance anymore? He's not getting what he needs most immediately out of it. So what's the point? He sells it. But verse 17, inevitably when he sought to inherit it, he couldn't find it. It wasn't given to him, even when he sought it with tears, right? And I think that helps make sense of verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And when we think about bitterness coming from believing, I'm not being given what I deserve. Or if I just had this, I could finally be content. Or everybody else has this and I don't have it. Why won't God give this to me when he's giving it to everybody else? And I've talked to people who literally will not come to the assembly because there's people, for instance, who are married. And I want to be married. I don't want to be around married people. And I resent the fact that because I want to be married and God's not giving me a wife, I don't want to be around those people, right? So the manifestation of bitterness comes out ultimately when you don't have that thing you're expecting or looking for for fulfillment. So the inevitable result of bitterness is withdrawal, separation, and sorrow. And again, that might not manifest itself immediately, right? That might not, again, look like an old person on their front porch, like saying, get off my lawn, things like that. But that's actually what you see with the Christians here. Kind of an interesting thing in Hebrews is you consistently see the writer encouraging them, be involved with each other, stop withdrawing from each other. And I want to show you that. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 And we'll get to the fact that the Christians here were getting worn out, discouraged, disheartened. They were not handling their trials with proper endurance and were falling away. And before he brings up the problem, he says, chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, that idea that God's not giving you what you need. God's not providing what you need to endure. Look further at chapter 10, um, verse 23 through 25. So again, this is maybe like a more well-known section of Hebrews. But again, I want you to think the purpose of this is you have Christians that because of their circumstance, because of bitterness seemingly being planted, You have people who are withdrawing from one another and separating from one another. So verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, he's saying the solution to what's happening, these hardships, 
is not withdrawal. It's to draw closer to God and to draw even closer to one another. Look at verse 32 of the same chapter. This is where he brings up more the problem and not only the problem, but what's really at the heart of what's going on. Verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through approaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to to the preserving of the soul. So the exhortation again and again to these Christians is first, don't withdraw from God in your weariness. That's not the solution. The second thing that's mentioned is God is providing. God is able to take care of the need that your trials are putting you in. And so draw close to each other, right? Because if they continue on the path of bitterness and let that progress, the inevitable result is continued withdrawal, separation, and inevitably like Esau, once we see what we've lost, is sorrow. Even if we don't see it now, eventually we'll see the result of it. And I'm sure you've seen people, by the way. Have you ever seen someone who is in like open bitterness? Would you define that person as like a happy person or someone that you enjoy spending any amount of time with? I've met and been around openly bitter people and it's very challenging, right? And so you see people like that, it's like their life and... I mean this strongly. It's like their bitterness has created for them a living hell that they've allowed themselves to sink deeply into. And so what God is trying to save us from is this sorrow and this withdrawal, this isolation that just puts us in a miserable position. Really, bitterness is rooted in a lack of faith, perspective, and honesty. What we'll see the Hebrew writer doing is trying to push them to have more faith. Remember Hebrews 11, right? That great faith hall of fame. Why is that brought up? Because it's through faith that we're able to reconcile the hardships of this life. To be able to find comfort and healing and hope. And it's by faith that we have the perspective to see God in the right light and to have the honesty to confront the real problem, right? So I want to bring up a contrast with the things I'm going to put up here with what bitterness is rooted in. And the contrast is, Satan does not want us to see things in a way that build our faith in a relationship with God. Satan wants us to ignore the problem. Satan wants us to avoid the problem. And Satan just doesn't want us to be honest about the problem, right? And so it's like what we've talked about recently with a few lessons on the idea of problem solving is there needs to be communication, obviously between people, But we have to learn how to communicate with God and be honest with God about our problems. So bitterness is first, it starts with our relationship and our view of God. If our view of God is what it should be, we will not become bitter with people. But if our view of God is broken, and if the seed has already been planted with God, like with Eve in Genesis 3, bitterness with people is a natural consequence of having already become bitter with God, right? But it's also rooted in an unwillingness to work through problems and emotions in a godly way. 
So we're going to look at verse 14 here um, for these next two points where they're told to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. How do you handle conflicts with brethren? Disagreements. Personality differences. Ultimately, what bitterness is, is when a person is unwilling to work through a problem, when they're not willing to work through their emotions in a Christ-like way, again, it causes seeds of resentment, tensions to grow, And so Satan doesn't want us to communicate meaningfully. Satan doesn't want us to be able to talk through our problems, to be patient with each other, to sacrifice my preference, to have fellowship with you. Um, And so again, if we're not willing to work through problems, first with God, but also with one another, it's inevitable that there be division, resentment, frustration, anger. And we also have to think about how do we talk about brethren? How do we think about brethren? One of the things that's really helped me about this when I've been talked to about this is it's helped me be aware of where bitterness starts in my thoughts. Um, some of you have heard me talk about this because this, this was something that really impacted me. There was a brother in Minnesota after I had literally like the week earlier been talked to about bitterness and what it looks like and the effect of it. A week after that, there was an older brother that took me aside to correct me on something. And he had every right to do that. And he handled it very, very well. It was something very, very needed. And literally as soon as I walked away, do you know what was going on in my mind? As soon as I walked away, who does he think he is? He shouldn't have talked to me like that. You know, he should have been more gentle. He should have said this. And I just, in my mind, it was like these loud, fast, aggressive thoughts. And I remember thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. I have a choice here of what I'm about to do with these thoughts. Am I going to let my thoughts here lead me on this path and recognize that if I, if I accept this, if I'm going to dwell on this, and if this is how I'm going to choose to think, then here's where this is going to go. It's going to escalate, and my ability to love the brethren is going to be destroyed. But if I choose to thank God for this brother and to discipline my thoughts that, no, thank you, God, for this brother. Thank you that he was willing to talk to me. That's going to set me on a totally different path. And so it helped me be aware I have a choice to make here, right? And so ultimately, that's, that's what God is equipping us to do, is to recognize we have a decision of what we do with our innermost thoughts, especially with what we do with our brethren. Satan wants us to be led by those automatic, loud, fast thoughts. Who do they think they are? Why didn't they do this for you? Did you notice that they did this? And it's like, no, 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 no. Hold on, slow down. Let's be thankful for our brethren. Let's give the benefit of a doubt. Let's be really careful about this, right? And bitterness, from what I have found in myself and seen in others, it's rooted in the neglect of Jesus' most foundational teachings. Folks, it doesn't get more basic than the Sermon on the Mount or a similar sermon in Luke chapter 6. That's only one chapter in Luke chapter 6. But do you remember things that Jesus said that relate to this in the Sermon on the Mount? Someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other out to him also. What does he say about anger? Saying things to your brother like, you good for nothing, you idiot. What does he say about that? What does he say if when you bring your gift to the altar, think about a Jewish context, and there at the time of your sacrifice, you remember your brother has something against you, not you against them, them against you. What does he say to do? Take care of it immediately, right? So Jesus is teaching in their most fundamental form, deal with this issue deal with the heart of this issue. 
and heal the deepest roots of the problem to uproot it. And so someone who's dwelling on hurt and lingering on frustrations with others, ultimately they have failed to apply the most fundamental teachings that Jesus himself said, this is your foundation to do these things, right? If this church is going to be a place where broken people can come in and be served and be helped, it's only going to be possible for us to be the right community if we're applying those kinds of teachings and taking them seriously, right? So again, bitterness has room to take root in the neglect of Jesus' most fundamental teaching. So verse 14 there, pursue peace with all men, is not something new. He's simply advocating for something they should already be applying. And think about what's involved in that. To have peace with my brethren, what do I have to do? I have to show mercy. I have to be forgiving, sacrificial. I've got to set myself aside. I've got to think about what builds peace. I've got to build meaningful relationships that are centered on righteousness, not just social niceties. And then look at the second part of the verse, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Think about sanctification as a process of becoming more holy over time. And don't think about it disconnected from pursuing peace. Relationships test our hearts. Relationships with brethren especially will test our hearts. When you serve brethren, if you have some ideal in your mind of what brethren should be, that they ought to be better than this or more mature than this, your expectations will not last very long and they're going to be broken. And I've seen so many brethren, including evangelists, preachers, who get involved with working with the church. They thought everybody is supposed to be nice and easy to work with and growth is supposed to happen a very certain kind of way and once that expectation is broken, years later you hear, oh, churches of Christ. You know what the problem with churches of Christ is? And oh, churches of Christ. And you hear these broad generalizations that just come from not handling your relationships in a godly way and then blaming others, right? And so if we're applying Jesus' teaching, it uproots those problems and heals our heart. So what are some solutions here besides just applying peace with all men and recognizing that we need to allow God to make us more like him? Where does that start? It's back in verses 1 through 3. So I'll read these. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 on the idea of fixating on Jesus. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So verse 3, who were those sinners, by the way? Who were they? Were those like strangers that Jesus had never met before? People he didn't care about? People that didn't matter to him? These were the people that he had given everything to who showed him the greatest hostility. Listen, there's nearly nothing more anti-Christ than abandoning our brethren when things are hard. Growing resentful when brethren have problems or attitude problems and we're unwilling to humble ourselves and try to 
fight against bad thoughts and judgments against them and just try to serve with discipline. The cross is an anthem of love that endures injustice, unfair treatment, and abuse. Not just from strangers who I have no concern of, who have no ability to hurt me, but from those who are closest to me. So Jesus has the unique power not only to uproot bitterness, but to heal its damage and to lead us on a path of rooted, enduring joy. That's what you see in verse 2, isn't it? That when Jesus was being abused, had he lost all the stability of his joy? So this is kind of the interesting irony of this joy. The joy that Jesus offers is not absent of problems. It's also not absent of grief, of intense sorrow, and again, how this irony kind of like escalates actually, this joy really equips us to actually endure greater grief and deal with more intense sorrow. But what it does is it fortifies us to be able to deal in peace with the most broken realities of life because of our faith. So one of the things he brings up is that Jesus suffered these things as an example for us to consider in verse 3 so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And by the way, that idea of like losing heart, that's the idea of being embittered toward God first, right? So we can't suffer any greater injustice than what Jesus endured. Like if you ever think like, it's just, it's not fair. It's not fair what's happened to me. It's not fair what's happened to my health. It's not fair that I lost this person in my life that I love. It's not fair that any circumstance around me isn't working in my favor or to my liking. It's not fair that I'm not financially where I want to be. Think about it. And who we are in God's eyes. Is life really fair for us? Like, really, really think about it. In God's eyes, what do we deserve? What do we deserve? Things actually are unfair, but they're unfair not only in the grace that we get to live in the world by any means for any length of time, that we would have any amount of comfort, any amount of ability to reason through our existence, but that God would offer salvation in its fullness as it's offered to us, that is unfair. And so the problem is ultimately we're not seeing who we are from God's perspective. And that's what bitterness does. It traps us in a perspective where we're we're no longer able to be rational about seeing things as they really are from a spiritually centered perspective. Like Esau, was he thinking rationally when he sold his whole birthright for a single meal? Think about it. If you own a house and somebody came up to you and offered you a Snickers bar for your house, would you take that offer? What Esau gave up was so much more than that, right? So again, we lose our ability to think through our problems in proper, rational ways when we become embittered by what we perceive to be unfair. And Jesus definitively proves in his death that God is definitively able to provide the resources that we need to endure any hardship by faith and learn from it and grow by it to not become embittered. This, by the way, is the momentum that chapter 11 leads into. I want to go back there and look at verse 35, chapter 11. And like, what's, 
What's really he getting to in this like faith hall of fame, by faith, by faith, by faith? I would argue that he's trying to make the point that people of faith have a history of gaining encouragement from God when it seemed impossible, when everything around them was broken and disappointing and could have embittered them and could have made them withdraw from their faith and from God. Instead, they drew even closer. And it's because of their faith in what God was providing. So verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. The others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskin, in goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. So Jesus not only endured everything on the cross as an example, that yes, God, in the culmination of all this faith that we see, God can provide. He can sustain faith. He can sustain the heart, even when being mistreated with the harshest injustice. But not only that, Jesus offered himself as a servant to give greater resources than what these people had who suffered in these ways, to give greater help, to provide better healing. And all of this is more than what was available ever before. So verse 40 again, God had provided. So again, God is able and God has provided. And I want to look at how in Hebrews, the author really focuses on this point throughout the book. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I want to think again, like, the emphasis, God has provided something better for us, and that Jesus offered himself, not just on the cross in a moment of time, but it was a testimony of a service he was willing to permanently and internally, eternally render to those who would call on his name and be God's children. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able, and again, notice this, to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Look further at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And again, think about the theme that the Hebrew writer has acknowledged. You have people who are growing weary. They're losing heart. They're in danger of becoming embittered against God and withdrawing from one another. And here are fundamentally the first solutions. Chapter 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look further at chapter 7, verse 23 through 27. Chapter 7, 23 through 27. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, notice this, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So we're going to kind of transition into the next point, thinking about the importance of, well, what has God promised, right? But the idea, again, at least for now, Jesus offered himself as a servant to give us resources that are meant to help and heal in times of need. Now, he gives us the resources. We can choose to ignore that. We can fail to utilize that. We can choose to trust in ourselves or find comfort, again, in becoming embittered and finding comfort in things or people rather than in God himself. But that does not change what the Hebrew writer is writing, that God has these available resources if we're willing to look for it and utilize it, right? So I want to look at verse 4 through 13 and just briefly think about how then we can learn to deal with discipline. How do we learn to deal with discipline and the idea that we endure hardships in life, right? We're going to be disappointed and hurt by brethren. We're going to be disappointed by life. Unexpected things happen that are out of our control. We're going to suffer in ways that we would never choose for ourselves. We're going to lose abilities bodily that we wish we could retain. We might lose abilities to serve people that we wish we could continue doing, right? So life is broken. And we're going to be confronted and our hearts are going to be tested by brethren, by people in the world, by the hardships of life. So we're going to read verse 4 through 13 and think more about how does this help us deal with all of these things. Verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son in whom he, he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom, a father, whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So I want you to think about this really quick first. Your children, for those of you who have children, toddlers, if you love your children, you're taking care of them, providing for them, does that mean they won't be hurt? Does that mean that other people can't hurt them or even mistreat them or even abuse them just because you love them? And if a parent and a young child have the right relationship, if a child has been hurt deeply, who are they going to go to? What Hebrews is saying is just because we live in this world, we're not to expect that we're not going to be hurt, right? And if God is a good father and we see him that way, what should a child, when they're hurt, how should they see that good parent? As their source of help, right? So we can believe because of what Jesus has done. And again, these are things that Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, this is definitive. Like there's, there's no argument about it anymore. Jesus proved it in the most concrete, eternally solid way. God is a relentlessly good and faithful father. That Jesus was suffering horrible injustice. And God had every reason to obliterate every single person that was mistreating Jesus. Jesus had every reason to become embittered when he was dying on the cross, to resent everything that was happening to him. But instead what Jesus proved is God was relentlessly working for good to accomplish salvation's purpose through that injustice. And so we have every reason to believe that God is a relentlessly good father, better than any father could ever be in the world. No matter how good or bad your parents is, God is infinitely greater, right? And because God is faithful, here's what we can trust about him. Whatever he chooses to do with my life, or the lives of people around me, no matter what that looks like. As hard as it can be to believe, it really is what's best. Look at verse 10. Earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Um, So I think we need to come to terms with something. Is the Hebrew writer saying, because God is a good father, He's going to fix the problem that you're being discouraged with. He's going to restore these houses that he had just referenced were lost. He is going to relieve you and make you comfortable again. Is God's priority our comfort? Is it our physical well-being? Is it even preserving necessarily our physical life? Think about Stephen when he was stoned to death. Think about Peter just a little bit later being released from prison and John or James, the other apostle, is beheaded. Is God's first priority our physical comfort? Or, or is God's priority and purpose our faith, our endurance, and for us to share in his holiness? Look at verse 10. Why does God discipline us? Why does he allow us to endure hardships in life and not send immediate relief, right? God is working to cause us to share his holiness. And that gives us a responsibility that we need to learn to value the things that God values and that we need to learn to surrender ourselves to God's purpose 
Even when it doesn't fit our ideals, our expectations, our hopes. And if we can learn to align ourselves with God's work to accomplish that end, we can have joy just like Jesus. And I want to end the lesson referencing some people that I've seen in my life who have been living illustrations of this. Um, I want to start with one that's been fairly recently. Um, even uh, John's brother, uh, Dan, he's in a part of Africa where, like, you know, sickness and all that is much more imminent and frequent, right? Um, so on Wednesday, not this past Wednesday, I think the Wednesday before that, we had announced that his daughter had malaria and typhoid fever. And her daughter's like, what, three? Eve is it three, four years old? Something like that. Yeah, she's a, she's a young toddler. She's got these serious life threatening illnesses. Um, and Dan, he, you know, a lot of Christians support Dan in his preaching over there. And so what he does is he'll oftentimes create YouTube videos reflecting on the work, things that are happening. Here's something he said about his daughter suffering with malaria. He said, although the agony I felt at watching my child suffer was intense, my trust in God's ability and desire to bring good from this circumstance was greater. And in the video, he goes on to describe that ultimately, his expectation wasn't that God is obligated to heal his daughter. And he went on to talk about how, just like in this lesson, when we expect things that God hasn't promised, that just leads us to needless disappointment. God hasn't promised to relieve us from every discomfort. God hasn't promised as soon as we lose one job to automatically give us another one. God hasn't promised that we be financially stable. God hasn't promised that we have the health that we wish we would have at all times, that we not deteriorate or lose loved ones that we wish we could keep around. But ultimately, God promises that he can redeem every hardship and work through it what truly is best. And when you hear a faithful Christian reflect on their trials, it is astonishing. There's older brethren who I've heard reflect on a past when their child was suffering with cancer in the hospital and they and their wife were outside the hospital praying and they mentioned that they would pray for God to heal their child. But ultimately, and they said they would pray this trembling, that God's will would be done even if it means their child would die. And as the brother went on to talk about that, how motivating, humbling, emboldening those things are. It's indescribable. And I've heard brethren talk about that with losses of children, losses of spouses, losses of health. Hearing brethren who have faith reflect on how God taught them and what they learned through their trials, it is astonishing hearing such things, especially when they're going through it. So that's the lesson for this morning. The root of bitterness, it can either refine our faith, make us more complete, or it can slowly and methodically be a tool that Satan uses to destroy our faith from the inside out. And it leaves us with a choice. Jesus' resurrection proves that there is hope for every person impartially, that we can all be healed of sin's disease overwhelmingly and receive grace 
far beyond that, exceeding our wildest imagination into eternity. God offers all of these things at his own expense. It's offered to us freely. So if you're here this morning and you see your need to respond to the gospel, I would encourage you, do not let moments go by realizing what you need to do. If there's anything we can do for you, come forward while we stand and sing. Your invitation song.